Content websites are supported by advertising. Most of the advertisements around the internet are dynamic ad slots that change depending on the user who visits the site. These dynamic ad slots are available to a variety of different bidders. For each ad slot, an auction occurs. The highest bidder gets to serve an ad for that slot. Praneet Sharma is the co-founder of Method Media Intelligence, which he founded with Shalin Dar. Shalin has been on the show several times to discuss his investigations into the world of advertising fraud. I wanted to have his partner, Praneet, on the show to get his perspective on advertising fraud and how to clean up the advertising ecosystem. One advance in dynamic advertising that we discussed in this episode is header bidding and an open source library called PreBidJS. When an ad-supported website gets delivered to your web browser, the HTML begins to load and the JavaScript on the page begins to execute. Some of that JavaScript is calling out to advertising networks looking for the highest bidder. Until the page receives a callback for what to put in the ad slots on the page, the page will not finish loading. Sites that do not manage their ad requests appropriately will suffer performance issues and sometimes the entire UI will block while it's waiting for those ad slots to load. Header bidding is a technique to wrap all the requests to different advertising exchanges in a single serialized blob of code at the top of the page. This was a good show that dove into the mechanics of online advertising. I hope you enjoy it too. Praneet Sharma is the co-founder of Method Media Intelligence. Praneet, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. We met through Shalin Dar, who has been on the show a couple times, and we're going to be airing another episode with him in the near future. He's one of the first guys that I was able to talk to quite openly about ad fraud with, and since then he's introduced me to some other people, including you. And you know, we'll we'll discuss a little bit about ad fraud, and then we'll get into some more specific subjects in the domain, like header bidding. But I just want to get a little bit on your background because the people who find themselves in the ad fraud detection industry tend to be mm-hmm. so interesting to me. What was your first interaction with advertising fraud? <laughs> yeah, so that's a, a great question. I actually to try to. You know, Shalin and I know each other. We knew each other since we were eight. So we've kind of been going back and forth. I knew he was in ad tech for a while. My introduction actually, you know, ad monitoring and uh, programmatic is, was, was through the monitoring world at New Relic. I actually worked at New Relic as an engineer, more on the sales side. And I interacted very deeply with the media vertical. Uh, so that was the likes of News Corp, Disney, AccuWeather, uh, Vice Media, and it was a very interesting time because a lot of these companies wanted to create the most optimal experience while maintaining that revenue stream and quarter over quarter growth, as it was termed. And they were experimenting with a lot of technologies. Well, I was noticing that you know there's a lot of stuff going on here, and I actually want to monitor it. So uh, that's where I built extensions for our uh, browser agent and mobile agent at New Relic to actually start monitoring these ad creatives. And that's where I noticed a lot of, you know, funky things going on as the data started coming in, performance data one, but then we started actually looking at revenue data, like real-time revenue data that some clients were getting. And that, that got very interesting from there. Mm-hmm. When you say interesting 
what do you mean? Unpack that <laughs> adjective. Yeah, so uh, I'll start unraveling that. Is uh, there were a lot of creatives that were, you know, when you go to a site and you look at banner ads, there's a lot of activity happening, and what they're doing is sending either XHR requests or actually dynamically injecting JavaScript within the browser, and the rendering activities very minute so there's a, the the interaction between the diff, different javascript tags and the actual network request is happening very very quickly as we know it's sometimes ideally under 100 milliseconds but that request is actually taking all your data around like you know cookie profiles you have where you've been uh, if you're logged into certain accounts and then what people use now is what's called dmps like crocs or blue Kai, and they do some uh, some of this data sharing to actually target you further and while that request is going out you know to the open exchanges like google's a big open exchange and rubicon and OpenX. these are the exchanges that connect to the advertisers they're going to do some real-time bidding on you. They're trying to figure out, okay, is this person going to have a baby soon? Are they going to buy a car soon? How much is that worth to me? And they'll start bidding in real time. And when that comes back, they basically lose sight of that. They're just like, okay, bid, bid's gone, all right? Like we've sent our bids, we've sent our creatives, like our little banner ads. The exchange kind of sends it back. And what I did specifically with Neuralic was I instrumented what's called the Google Publisher tag. And it's used quite heavily across the board and it gives you a lot of information around what creative came in what line items you know what is the rendering performance and what i mean by interesting data i saw a lot of hidden things like things that weren't even possibly viewable you know they're one by one or they're 10 by 10 but there was no way anyone could possibly view them and i wondered to myself like what's going on here like doesn't this site A or B or this publisher A or B care about that? Like, don't they actually, you know, this is hindering performance, right? This is contrary to what web performance is. And I was so wrapped up in kind of, they want to optimize their site so much. And I went to the engineering teams there and they're like, yes, we really care about this. Like, understand us. Like, we want to make this an optimal experience. But we have to hit revenue numbers. And this is, these are the tags that we have to deploy, and it's crazy that you're seeing this because we we didn't know what's going on either. It, it, that's like the fascinating thing. These are third-party tags within these sites that no one really knows how they behave, but they're also dynamically updating. And you know, reading you know minified code is you know one example, but of just not wanting to spend your day uh, in the best manner, but. Uh, since they're dynamically updating and this ecosystem is always interacting with each other and kind of maybe even trying to subvert one another, you really don't know what's going on until you monitor it. And once you monitor it, you see some creatives that you just would not believe that would even render, right? Like the in-banner videos you see. To give some context for what you're talking about, I mean, what I find so interesting about this industry and I think what listeners have enjoyed about the episodes that we've done about advertising fraud is that there is in the advertising. So first of all, advertising runs the internet and people, people often don't talk about it or don't want to talk (laughs) about it or just forget that this is what runs the internet. That's one part of the interest of it. But the other is like, there is a lot of malfeasance. There's also a lot of just incompetence and just like there's too much technology for us to deal with and the yeah. way that things have 
developed, there's like a bajillion layers of different players and market structures, not to mention the technology layers, and nobody knows everything that's going on from, mm -hmm. you know, from the smallest ad tech player to the largest, like Google. Mm -hmm. There's just nobody who knows everything that's going on. It's just, just this big open market. And so there's also, there's also malfeasance that people can justifiably attribute to incompetence. So people can say, oh yeah, we didn't know this was happening. Like there's too much data. There's too much like mess going on. You know, oh, I'm sorry the numbers came out this way. Like if you, mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure, you know, I've talked to Shalin about this stuff sometimes. Like when he holds a microscope up to the data that he gets from somebody and he says, hey, this doesn't make sense. They can always throw the bluff of, oh, well, you know, it doesn't make sense because we had a lot going on and there's all this, <laughs> you know, there's all these moving parts and you don't understand it. And, you know, he holds the micro microscope up closer. And he's like, no, like this is clearly fraudulent. And so mm -hmm. I, I say all that just to kind of paint a picture for people who have not heard our previous episodes about ad fraud or who have not looked into this space at all. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating because there's just there's a lot of bs going on there's also a lot of chaos going on and it's sometimes hard to disambiguate the two you know when is somebody doing purposeful malfeasance and when is somebody creating a system where there's no accountability just because it's too complex yeah exactly and i think to kind of give more context is a lot of people get lost in the abstraction of it, right? Uh, advertisers have agencies, agencies work with many platforms, and then platforms work with the big exchanges and exchanges work with, you know, thousands of maybe millions of publishers. There's just so many layers, right? And the whole, the scientific methodology would be having tracking within each layer. Well, that's very difficult because of the abstractions the tracking might not be sound it might get lost which is very very common so when you actually do some sort of you know auditing work it's almost trying to actually guess you're making you have to make some assumptions and the ecosystem plays on that right because if you provide them with data that says hey this is what happened because we tracked it you know like we tracked this in this manner on the landing page or you know within our creative they can kind of refute that, not in a scientific manner, though. They'll just say, oh, well, we don't think that's so. And you ask them for data then. You know, that's the scientific thing to do is actually disprove my theory with your own set of data and observations. Well, they say they just lost it or they say their data retention doesn't work that way. Or a lot of people, because there's abstractions within the company itself, don't know how it works. So they'll say, oh, we don't know how to get that data. Actually, our engineering team might know. But then the engineering team says, oh, we don't know where that's stored. So you're actually just running around and you're chasing data. So advertisers usually have to do all this heavy lifting themselves. And they, they don't have the you know expertise sometimes or they have their own layers of abstraction. So the biggest monetization channel of the Internet is just covered in abstraction and it's this sort of ephemeral inventory that they sell, right? Like imagine selling a banana at this price one day and it disappears. And then you're like, well, did someone eat that banana? It's like, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, what are you and Shalin trying to do with Method Media Intelligence, which is this company that you two started? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So we focus a lot on education. Since I joined, Shallon has done a great job on educating the industry uh, around the financial incentives, uh, the technical aspects. You know, why would this occur? It's not just, you know, some Russian hacker. It's regular old people. He really represented the advertiser and agency side. I had the unique opportunity to work with publishers and I have an engineering background. So I brought a lot of this in with the, uh, you know, I've, I've built these tools, I've built these kind of test cases, and I've worked with these publishers. And I think one of the best interactions we had was just early on, you know, reconnecting, you know, we've known each other for so long, but reconnecting and me telling him that, hey, publishers care about this too, right? Like publishers actually think it's a black box and they don't like it. And this is why, because I worked with the engineering teams at publishers and they're like, dude, we have to deal with all the bugs and we have to deal with all the difficulties that these tags throw at us. We get blamed for everything. So they're all trying to understand it. And we've really kind of broadened the horizon on what we do. So we start with, you know, training. Why would fraud exist? It's not just, you know, a hacking conspiracy. It's actually deeply rooted into the system because of all these abstractions. These are the incentive systems. We've gotten a lot more technical too around hey, let us me- help you measure it. We'll work with advertisers. We'll work with agencies to, okay, these are the measurement philosophies that you have to integrate, but also more of the testing philosophies where we actually have a tool set that allows us to uh, you know, crawl certain sites or crawl certain campaigns and actually gather data you know, with synthetic browsing techniques around, oh, hey, like this is what's happening uh, on this site. They have all these invisible ads and this is the network timing and this is what's showing up and uh, it shouldn't be showing up or this is showing up exactly as it should be, so that's all good. Uh, we've added a lot of that uh, research capability to our uh, arsenal. I've done some shows about some of the software in the bot detection mm-hmm. industry. And so bot detection filters, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the stuff that I like to report on in the ad fraud space is this fake traffic stuff. Basically, yeah. this... This typical scheme where you set up a website, like I always use the example beefrecipes.com, you crawl the internet for beef recipes, you put all those recipes on your website, so you've got now you've got a bunch of content, and then you set up a advertising account with some advertising mm-hmm. provider, you get yeah. display ads on your website, and then mm-hmm. you go and you buy quote-unquote traffic to be sent to your website, and that traffic is mostly bots coming from yeah. probably a data center somewhere. And so this scheme is, you know, that's the basic version of it. There's plenty of complex versions, and it's it's really scalable. It gets you a lot of money, and this is one thing that bot detection companies try to prevent. And mm-hmm. in the interviews I've done with bot detection companies, I'm just, like, every time unimpressed with their answers like how are they detecting the difference between a bot and a human well basically they don't have a good answer to that and so it just makes me wonder like you know what is the right approach to building software that attacks this industry that tries to change things in the industry because one of the things about the bot detection filters is publishers 
will buy these things just so they can say, oh, yeah, we've got like these safeguards against bots. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually matter to them. If they, I mean, <laughs> well, to some of them, to like the, the, the unscrupulous players, they don't actually care if they're preventing bot traffic because the more bots, frankly, for them, the better. They get more traffic. They get yeah. more ad, ad impressions. They get more money. That's great for them if they're unscrupulous. And there's a lot of unscrupulous publishers out there. Yep. So, and, you know, just to unpack this whole supply chain a little bit more, the way that advertising is structured today is just basically a whole bunch of people who are trying to take money from the advertisers themselves, the big brands that are actually footing Mm -hmm. the bill of these things. And so the incentives are totally out of alignment because all they really care about is, is the advertiser going to continue paying us money? And because the advertisers are still pretty naive when it comes to bot traffic, they still do pay money. So I I should simplify this into a question. What are the right kinds of software to build to actually change this industry? Who actually cares enough to buy that software i mean who are you catering to with the software that you would build at method media intelligence yeah sure and to answer the question about what's the right way to detect bots there's a lot of oversimplification that you see with ip whitelists and blacklists uh that people try to say okay this will prevent these types of data centers well you know we have dynamic ips all the time and uh, people can tunnel traffic so that never really works But then there's the other end of the spectrum around uh, big data kind of analysis around we analyze thousands of metrics around you're a bot or not. And that leads to a lot of false positives, but it introduces a lot of latency and infrastructure overhead, right? Like you can't just uh, build a portable big data analysis machine. It is actually backed by probably its own data center and that's to in real time analyze uh, anomalies. I mean, I, I worked at New Relic, so we got billions of trillions of data points, and there was a lot of cost associated with that. So, how much are you trying to, you know, how much do you care where it's, uh, I'm going to pay this much amount to take care of bots, where a lot of advertisers and publishers uh, that I've worked with are just like, it's collateral damage to them. It's just uh, just another thing that they have to deal with. So I think the right software really is around vetting, right? Like how you got to take the, I believe the security industry's approach, uh, what they do with pen testing is what can we build that can actually say how, you know, susceptible are you to bot traffic or how much will it matter to you, right? Like, can we actually deploy something that I can actually do a test around, okay, you load things in this way, or you're loading or making this many uh, bid requests in this session within this location, can we proactively test it? Because trying to get publishers specifically in this day and age right now, maybe that'll change in the future, to install universally a standard of bot detection is one hard, but then they'll have to constantly adapt that because the people who are actually making a profit off of this will just start patching that code. Because again, the execution environment that all of this runs on is just plain old JavaScript. And as we know, at runtime, you can modify a lot of that, which is what these bot vendors can do. So there's no one simple way to do it. You know, there's I take it more of as a risk score, like, okay, how susceptible are your ads to bot traffic, right? You can just kind of give them a score 
by saying, okay, this is the amount of reach that you want, but this is the amount of risk that you also is entailed with that. You know, and it's it's something that you should measure yourself. So that I think the best thing uh, advertisers can do of all else fails is measure their own landing pages, and then rule it out which ones. The one thing bots can't do yet, I'm going to say yet, is they can't convert. They can't actually buy that car. They can't actually you know make that purchase. Or they're very lazy. Bots are these data center bots that are being deployed. Uh, they want to run at scale, so they're not going to spend minutes on your page. So you can start analyzing these signals. People do this today with Google Analytics, even though it's samples, but analyzing these signals and making it affordable for advertisers where it's like, okay, we've seen segments of this type of traffic act anomalous. You know, it's more of a zoom out approach. You know, we start with all the converting users and how are all the other, where are the differences between converting users and then non-converting users and what are the characteristics where are the device characteristics where are the regions how often are they coming from ads what's like the time kind of distribution doing this sort of analysis is very valuable because then you start to understand that yeah we are getting a lot of bots as an advertiser coming you know clicks are coming from you know this site but can we start minimizing that or can we just monitor it and actually educate ourselves enough to go back to our platforms and say, okay, we need to make this adjustment and then remeasure it scientifically. How did, how did mobile change advertising fraud? Mobile actually opened up a lot more possibility, right? Now there's something that advertisers or sorry, advertising platforms use that's called cross quote unquote cross device attribution. So they have a lot more window of credit now. So there are many platforms that say, oh, we can track you on mobile. They make assumptions, right? Like they do cookie-based tracking and they try to do IP matching. And now advertisers, they've been told that you have two devices that you can target. And advertising platforms love this because they love attribution. So they're like, oh, we might have not gotten a click on the desktop, but we found your mobile device and we attributed it there. So, yay, we get credit, whether or not that's true, because they're not like deep linking to each other like that, or there's no sort of communication. They're making an assumption that these might be on the same IP address, they might have been logged into Facebook here and there, we could pull that cookie, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it should be attributed. So the bad thing about, you know, uh, how people are dealing with this uh, uh, mobile advertising space is the ecosystem's taking advantage of it right? The more screens, the better. And TV, you know, programmatic TV, as they call it, or, you know, with casting or, you know, watching YouTube through a Chromecast, like, now there's another screen. So the more screens, the better. Have you seen these pictures of the cell phone farms, where it's like, you've got Mm -hmm. like, just rows and rows and rows of hundreds and thousands of cell phones, just sitting there, I guess they're programmatically clicking on ads or downloading apps or something. Yeah. And that might be the extreme examples, although they exist. You've gotten to the point now where you can actually emulate Android on a server, like Android in a box, like you can actually run it. So the data center and the cloud services remain the most scalable way to deploy, you know, bots, you know, fake traffic. Uh, you do see the cell phone farms, and I, I I think it's quite funny because it's it's just like botnets, right? Like the the effort involved in getting everyone or getting a you know someone to 
install an extension or malware. Like there's a lot of actual obstacles that you have to cross. Although it's more complex and easier, or uh, sorry, harder to detect, it's it's the same thing. It's it's very it's the extreme examples, I believe, because just the effort level, right? If I'm trying to create a bot, like I wanted to basically spin it up magically, uh, deploy it on a hundred instances, and just you know fire it off. So yeah, I've seen the cell phone farms and. You know, I'm saying that it might be low, right? The the incidence rate of uh, cell phone farm click fraud, but uh, you know, you never know, right? Because you do see uh, various ones pop up, and if it is profitable, right? Like if you make it profitable enough, if the cost per install is so high, then yeah, people will do it. So the data center instances where they just spin up an Android operating system virtualized in a container or something, mm-hmm. There's, is there any way to identify that that is data center traffic versus like, I mean, is there some kind of like hardware user agent thing that uh-huh. that is, you know, you can detect that this is sitting in a container on a data center rather than in an actual hardware phone device that somebody's using? Yeah. I mean, I'll say yes, because we have actually at Method Media been working on something like that. And although we don't want to get into the, you know, bot detection vendor game, it's part of our research because we've seen a lot of this invalid traffic. We've analyzed it. I myself have actually spun up, you know, web driver instances where I'm trying to spoof things and pen test it basically to see how far I can go to run these simulations I would say we have a good bot, right? Like it actually vets, you know, uh, different publishers or uh, does availability tests, but it actually reveals a lot of things about how these bots function, especially in the data center. There are a lot of environmental variables that actually they do not have where your phone or laptop or desktop might have. So we're actually, you know, something we patented recently is uh, we we have something that uh, can rule it out now right because it's always about adaptability right it could it could work now but doesn't necessarily mean it'll work in the future because it's all it's a it's evolutionary dynamics it's all about adaptation so if we remove the oxygen for the bots that need oxygen then that's great but what if there's a species that evolves that doesn't need that or they you know they subvert that so it's going to be another kind of workaround we might need but Right now, we believe we have something that can, don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about it, but it's interesting, right? And this was all due to the research we're doing. You kind of have to step into it and actually create one yourself. You really have to kind of play around with the tools. These tools are actually commodity tools. You can spin up WebDriver, try it. You know, you have headless Chrome now and you can set it with a bunch of flags. You can even load it with extensions. You can simulate a lot of things with your commodity browser, or you can do it with Firefox. It doesn't really matter. You can simulate mobile. You can simulate touch events. You can you can run it in a lot of environments. And then, you know, you start, you start uh, analyzing these permutations and you notice that what's a constant right now, right? Like what makes Chrome different from headless Chrome or Chrome on, you know, OS X versus Chrome on Linux on... You start noticing these patterns and right now, I believe that a lot of the bot detection vendors, they try to analyze too much behavioral qualities. 
right? They're trying to see mouse movements or keystrokes, right. or they tell you that, right? Because they want to basically kind of cloud your mind or impress you and wow you with how fast they can kind of coordinate all these click events or, you know, mouse strokes. And it's almost like magical to an advertiser where they're like, wow, like these, these big data engineers are just so awesome. But, you know, some of that might not be true or it might be very slow, right? Or easily subverted, right? Like there's, you can have, you know, recordings of behavior and then right. you can just have the bot replay it, right? You can just right. add some noise to it and some variety. Attack. Yeah, and these are things that are actually very, very possible. Bots can beat CAPTCHA too and they don't necessarily need machine learning to beat CAPTCHA. CAPTCHA is actually very easy to beat if you realize that hey captcha is just kind of this uh javascript that sits on the page then you start poking at it and then you eventually you're just like wow that was simple and uh you've heard sensational stories around captcha is you know like people have been using computer vision to beat captcha and they have this uh generational or you know adversarial network that beats captcha i mean the bot vendors will or the the, the malicious bot creators will actually take the simplest route right they don't want to create a neural network to kind of make a problem they actually want the simplest kind of click button route so that's what they'll look at and sometimes being wrapped up in this whole fantasy that big data can solve everything or ai can solve everything that that actually leaves a huge hole in the simple things and you just kind of walk around it this is why this is why i like reporting on this space because like when I talked to the bot detection company, uh, this, whole, this one show I, I, I don't even want to mention the name of the of the provider because it was just like uh, I talked to the CEO and it just like kind of eviscerated his his reasoning because I I, mean, I told him again and again I was like okay so this method you're explaining to me is not resilient to a replay attack is that correct and he'd be like well people don't use replay attacks and like <laughs> oh, yeah. Like how how would you even know? I mean, if you if, yeah. if, you know, like clearly you're not trying to detect it, so I, or you know, clearly you're not capable of detecting it. So how would you even know? And mm-hmm. he'd be like, "Well, people are not using it. We're fairly confident." Like, "Oh, okay. Oh, you're confident. That's good." So okay, so you're you're an outspoken guy, and I have I've got a got kind of a, a not a conspiracy theory, but like a um, alternative explanation to. Oh, this is just something I've discussed a couple times on the show, but it's so interesting seeing seeing the world try to diagnose how cybersecurity and how internet stuff works in mm-hmm. the wake of this election and just people still talking about like what the heck happened was it a ha- was there hacking was there information like was there in- information war did did Russia plant a bunch of propaganda across all these n- fake news sites and what happened there and when I look at that, I'm like, well, you know, the Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is mm-hmm. is you don't even need a well-orchestrated conspiracy from a, a government actor. All you need is some people who said, you know, we could just stand up some websites with very salacious information and make a bunch yeah. of money off of advertising. And that's like the simplest explanation and it's so interesting to see that nobody discusses that as the explanation. And I don't know if it's because, like, 
news organizations are afraid to sort of bite the hand that feeds them by mm-hmm. by sort of criticizing the ad tech world, or if it's just because people, or, or perversely, if it's because you know they're going to get more clicks if they report on it as if, as if it's a Russian conspiracy, <laughs> yeah. like creating more sketchy news themselves. I'm just you know this is just my theory and this is like what I think about sometimes. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Any comments on it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what happened is in, from my angle, my theory is just, uh, you have a bunch of people who try to use their own measurements without considering other measurements or measurements they might've missed. Right. If you watch CNN, MSNBC or any of these, you know, news anchors, like they have a lot of data, right? They have a lot of analysis and they're like, okay, we looked at this, you know, constituency and then we analyzed cross section with this one. And, and all of a sudden their conclusion was wrong. And they're like, wait, like we measured all this, right? You're talking about polls. Yeah, polls. And the same thing in the ad tech world is basically there's all these measurements and you hear about this, like, you know, the bot detection vendor you're talking about, well, we've never seen replay attacks. Well, it's like, how do you know, right? Because you, what if they're, subverting your measurement, right? And that's what happened is uh, with the vast kind of quantity of information that is the internet, you'll never really fully measure something because there's a lot that could happen. You could lose network connectivity being the simple answer or you know, some person's device could lose network connectivity. You could have a bug that you have a nine minute window, you know, working at Nero, like you see these nine minute windows for some customers that they just stop reporting data. So there's all these gaps in data and to, trust only your data set is is nuts because there's going to be always conflicting opinions because someone else will have more data or less data or completely different data and i think the best thing you can do is kind of say okay this is what the data is telling me but i'll try to be skeptical right like I'll always kind of challenge my own data set and always look for more and i think what happened during the election cycle and all these you know key events is Exactly. You're right. Some people were like, wait a minute, we can just play around with opinion. And this is the type of data set that we get, right? Like this is the type of data we're getting. So let's just keep playing around with it. I think that's what really happened during that is just that feedback loop that was generated. Yeah. If you're somebody like Shalin or or me, I, I worked briefly in ad tech. It's easy to develop a pretty cynical and almost tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theory perspective that every ad tech company out there is malicious or they know like under the covers deep down they know that oh there's lots of bot traffic they know there's lots of nasty ad fraud schemes going on but i, I don't know i'm i'm curious from your perspective mm-hmm. how do you, do the people in ad tech believe in the products they're building like this is this is what's hard is like i've tried to i've contacted people like at um the big the huge exchanges and certainly the the biggest ad tech companies in the world i've contacted them nobody will talk about ad tech like the biggest <laughs> that's what's so weird about yeah. it is like you know if you if you if you call up Amazon, yeah, Amazon, like the most shrouded and mystery company in the world. But if you call them up and ask them, like, hey, can I like talk to you about e-commerce? Like somebody will will get on the phone with you to talk about e-commerce. Like that's their yeah. bread and butter, right? Yeah. So like the biggest companies, the biggest technology ad tech companies in the world will not talk about 
the technology around their ad tech, at least not with me. Maybe, maybe, maybe they talk with other people, but what's going on there? Like, is there something missing? Am I missing something? (laughs) Like, why don't people in ad tech talk about the technologies around ad tech? Why don't they talk about ad fraud? Why don't they talk about how much bot traffic there is? Like, What's going on there? No, no, these are valid questions. It's it's honestly probably the answer should be they don't understand it themselves, right? A lot of these people who work at these companies might not understand web requests or XHR requests or JavaScript tags, like how it works. Like this is all shrouded in mystery to them themselves. So I think what happens is uh, they would love to answer your question, but they haven't actually read up on it because... You know, like they just didn't feel like it was necessary. They might be a sales marketing person. They might even be an operations person. They're like, okay, like this is the role I play. And, you know, why would I, this is all, this is all the machine stuff that goes on. Try talking to the engineers, right? Like I think talking to the engineers that worked at the publishers that incorporated all these tags and all the kind of execution environment around them, the rendering of the actual document when they have to, when that's your bread and butter and yeah those are your kind of KPIs, they know absolutely everything about it. So a lot of what I learned was uh, more of what I learned was through uh, working with these engineers at these publishers that were incorporating and taking care of everything. I, I, I mean, AccuWeather is a great example of just like, there's very few people working there and they have such a huge machine that they have to manage. And the engineers there, they're just like, brilliant. You know, they have to manage this whole kind of Goliath of traffic. And they just know so much about the space. Whereas if you go to the ad tech stack, right? Like if you go to like a uh, someone who works at a platform or someone who works with the, an advertising or supply side platform, there might be a lot of abstraction because it's supposed to be that way. They were told it's supposed to be that way, just sell it. Or they just didn't really bother reading up about it. You know, it's it works, so it works. Why, why care about that from that perspective? You know, you're putting in this much money, you get this many quote unquote clicks. Yeah, I heard about bots, but you know, what? whatever is basically the attitude. Hmm. Right. Okay. Well, you know, we've been talking in the abstract and I've done enough shows about the abstract complexities and fraud and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's dive into something a little more specific and yeah. give some people a bit more of an education about a narrow topic in ad tech. And that topic is header bidding. Explain mm-hmm. what header bidding is. So header bidding is quite new. And I actually learned about header bidding as it was imp- being implemented at these various publishers. The way you know, the way it worked, you know, the way it still works for a lot of people actually, is when you go to a site, they'll start making a chain of requests to uh, basically bid on your value based on browsing history, based on uh, other characteristics, IP address, location, and they'll actually fire that, rec- they're, what, what's called waterfalling, they're firing it one by one to different exchanges, like bidding, okay, like 75 cents, and then you know going to the next one, $1. What publishers started to notice is with this, it's like we're losing money because like we're having to wait and then it might increase latency and dependency basically. What if it, what if the chain breaks? So with the nature of the browser being asynchronous, now with header bidding, you can send out all the requests all at once, you know, asynchronous. So all the exchanges theoretically should get a request all at once and then send it out all their 
you know, connected advertisers and, you know, they'll bid on it and then they'll resolve that and basically send it back one by one or, you know, in parallel to the actual header bidding tag. And for for those of you who are curious, you should look at PreBidJS. It's uh, open source. It's uh, very deeply integrated. Uh, people sell their own header bidder tags too. And uh, you can kind of just uh, pop open the hood on Chrome and go to the XHR tab or network tab and really see the header bidder responses that are coming back. It might seem like a lot of data, but as you start unraveling the responses, you see uh, deep information like the targeting parameters, sometimes geolocation, uh, the creative, the actual HTML document that's going to be potentially embedded within that, you know, 500 by 300 or, you know, narrow banner ad or wherever it may be. But sometimes you can also see the actual values of what they bid on you, right? Like you can actually see this with pre-bid is, okay, this person bid at you know, $7 cost per thousand. This person bid at $10 cost per thousand. Uh, even see who the advertiser, what it was and who lost. You can see who lost and won, who's bidding against each other. And, um, you know, even as if there's they're bidding too much, you have sites that actually just, for some reason, the header bidding just keeps going on and on. There's a huge latency that actually develops. So the crux of header bidding is basically publishers were like, hey, like we want to send the maximum amount of bids. Like we want the maximal revenue. Let's make this asynchronous. We have this tag. It could be pre-bid.js or it could be something else. But this tag basically abstracts and wraps around our partner connectivity. So we can send, in a, a, send a request to AppNexus and uh, Rubicon and OpenX and uh, all these other exchanges. And I left out Google because they actually don't take, they don't involve themselves with the open uh, header bidding. They actually run their own. So what you have now is uh, Google's ad exchange now has to compete with the open exchange. So that's created this kind of like furious battle between like the open exchange and Google around, okay, who's going to win? Is it going to be AdX or is it going to be, you know, Rubicon or something? Mm. They send all their bid requests to usually, uh, you know, DFP, which is Google's like the ad server that people usually use. And that will finally get resolved in, okay, who won? Who is the second floor price? Like who has, you know, who has the highest bid and they'll pay the second floor price. And then your creative will finally render. This will happen in hopefully a hundred under a hundred milliseconds. But being from the ad monitoring side where I got to work with the publishers, uh, you see some anomalies, right? You see some seconds or you see some bid prices that are just insane. Like it's just a, uh, you know, a hundred CPM or like I saw one, which was like, they paid a dollar for that impression. And I just didn't want to believe it. I was like, this is an incorrect measurement I'm probably doing. But then you just kind of look at it more and more and you're like, this is a wild world, right? Like, can you even possibly monitor it? Um, that's the crux of header bidding. It's it's just taking, a, taking something uh, that requires uh, a lot of dependency and then wrapping it and then firing it all at once and then finally resolving it. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. The reason we got to header bidding is because the way that pages were structured pre-header bidding was mm -hmm. you've got a series of lines of code that yeah. are a quote-unquote waterfall of requests to yeah. different ad exchanges to say, hey, we're loading this page. 
we're mm-hmm. going to serve some ads to somebody. What kind of price are you willing to pay to load your advertisement on this impression? Yes. And the problem is when you string 20 different requests to 20 different exchanges in a row, you've got all these callbacks that are waiting to happen and yep. the might be blocking while you're waiting for all of those callbacks. Mm-hmm. So instead, you replace all 20 of those lines with a much more succinct series of JavaScript that is pre-bid.js that wraps all of the logic with exchanges mm-hmm. in in a way that is more amenable to a faster load time. Is that accurate? Yes, exactly. Faster load time, but also maximum revenue. You have to consider the fact that now I can run it in parallel and maximize that chain. Like all the callbacks can, I don't have to wait for all the callbacks to execute. I can just wait for one and it gives the publisher maximum opportunity. How How is that? I mean, is are you still essentially bottlenecked by the exchange that takes the longest time to call back? No, actually... Here was the risk that was uh, the render blocking, right? Uh, if the user leaves, the bids don't resolve and the actual auction isn't complete. So with header bidding, it's kind of a trade-off. They're like, okay, let's try to... Comp- a lot of exchanges actually time out with header bidding. Uh, header bidding has actually caused this uh, stress on the DSPs where they're just getting way too many requests now. So either they'll time out or they won't want to bid on you. So a lot of publishers, they want to know, okay, which ones is timed out and which one won't bid because they have a they have a very small window of attention that they're trying to target. So it's a trade-off. They'll actually cut the auction off after a certain timeout. You can define that timeout, but it's usually, you know, 100 milliseconds. Uh, it could be 300 milliseconds. Depending on the attention span of the user, they determine they'll actually stay on the page. But they want the rendering to complete. And this is where it actually starts getting more interesting when I, when I talk about the timeout is because with single page apps, you can render a lot of interactivity uh, immediately, you know, with React and Vue.js, like kind of the MV kind of uh, convention, but with even Angular, you can render very, very quickly. So the faster you can render, the more you can lock that user in. And then you can do, you know, you can continue the bidding cycle. Mm-hmm. But with a lot of traditional pages, like the rendering is blocked by the execution. So you got to, you know, you got to start doing some sort of trade-off scenario where, okay, I'm just going to time this out at hundred milliseconds and whatever comes back, at least it ran in parallel, right? At least some, everyone started at time zero, hopefully. Whereas now you'll see more and more of these publishers, you know, the ones I worked with, some of them were actually adopting Vue.js, which is a very fast rendering, you know, front-end rendering framework. And they were trying to maximize bidding time because they wanted this site to render immediately so the user is reading that article and scrolling and then bids can keep flowing in. So you're saying that maybe somebody would load a page and then they scroll down and as they're scrolling down, the ads lower down on the page maybe they haven't even the auction hasn't finished yet and they haven't yep. the ads haven't loaded yet yeah exactly but it gives them more time more window of opportunity mm-hmm. without blocking rendering like browsers have gotten very optimized but then uh so has so have javascript frameworks like the javascript ecosystem and if you can create a single page app that doesn't necessarily block rendering and can actually lazy load and actually use uh 
various techniques to actually create modular JavaScript, that it becomes very advantageous because now the window of opportunity is going to increase. So yeah, you might notice when you scroll down, sometimes a footer isn't loading, but at least you're still hooked, right? There are some sites where they have like an infinite scroll functionality. And as you scroll down, they'll navigate to a new page. But that gives them more time to load ads, basically, is you're already moving on to the sec second article by unknowingly sometimes by scrolling down. And they'll just do a kind of lazy navigation using the history state in the browser. And without refreshing the page, you've navigated to a new article and you're like, oh, wait, there's another article. But the footer is still loading and the new header is loading. It just gives them more kind of connectivity. I was reading about this topic as I was preparing for this interview. And one of the things I read that I didn't completely understand was this premise that header bidding's increase in popularity has led to greater data sharing. So there's more user data that's being shared with the exchanges and the SSPs where when my page is going to load and that bid is being or that that request from prebid js is being made to the series of exchanges like more data is being passed can you unpack that yeah sure and that depends on how much they want to pass right like a lot of these like crux is you know being that example again blue kai the dmps like there are tags that'll help you unpack more data about your Sorry, user. Sorry, what is DMP? I believe it's digital marketing like platform. Uh, not sure. It's just a. It's very new to me as well, right? Like I've worked with. Uh, I've worked with a publisher who's used Crux, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But essentially, it's another JavaScript tag. It's called Crux Link, and there's a lot of code data sharing you can do you know, between your users or, or like your user profiles. And the way pre-bid and many of these header bidder tags, the way they work, they let you define targeting. It, it could be content targeting, like what's the type of article? What are the cookies, you know, that they have actually set and what information they can gather out of that? Are you logged into social? Are you not? There's various things you can do. And within the protocol, you know, the, the bidding protocol, you can pass this information. So this is the type of data that is actually used to target, right? The more you can actually gather from the parent JavaScript, right? Like the actual cookies that are available. That's why third-party tracking within uh, browsers is becoming such a hot topic is because these are iframes that are essentially loading, right? Like from other domains and they're passing cookie information because, you know, they own that domain. They can pass that first-party cookie uh, you know, as a third-party cookie for the parent domain, which might be AccuWeather, Weather, you know, CNN.com. So suddenly the publisher has all this data to play around with and send to maximize, you know, bid responses, right? They're trying to maximize the fact that you might be shopping for a car. So with more data, they can actually incentivize the actual bidders to bid as high as possible, and then as the responses come back, as I mentioned, you can show CPM, you can actually determine the value of a user, right, in real time. So if the publisher has monitoring around how much this user is worth and what their latency was like, they can start actually actively investing and trying to keep that user there, right? If I find out that, you know, if I'm a publisher, I have code that finds out that you're uh, about to have a baby, 
and all these people are feverishly bidding on you, I could actually start modifying my page to say, okay, like, how do I keep this user here? And um, how do I maximize the advertising reach? You can actually dynamically modify it now. Weird. Like, what's an example of that? Example would just be with, uh, we worked with a public, I, I can't say who it is, but we monitor their PBJS responses. And they would only do this once, of course, they got the CPM value. And they would mark each session as, oh, we've seen 10 sessions with a CPM value of uh, 50 uh, or more. And they would chart that. And then they would say, okay, what are the targeting mechanisms? Because they're tracking them as attributes as well. Okay, so they're having, you know, they're on this article or that article. They're looking at, uh, you know, this type of content. But then also, what were the targeting parameters sent, right? If we can figure out what the targeting parameters actually return of the maximum value, all of a sudden, we know which one, we know what facets actually give us $50 or more. They could just analyze that from the data they're getting. But then using that real-time notion, they can create hooks where it's like, okay, if you see this, you know, simple old heuristics, if you see this type of targeting or you see this type of, you know, cookie, load more ads or, you know, interest them in other things. Try to keep them on the page. This is a very valuable session. Those were the types of data sets that you can actually kind of draw conclusions from and through even retroactive scanning of the data they already had, they can make future assumptions on, okay, we're probably going to see this user again. Or if we see a user like this user, uh, we know how to hook them on and maximize our revenue. All right. Well, I want to draw to a close. You know, we've been going down to the weeds in this header bidding topic. Let's zoom out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Give me your perspective on what is in the future of ad tech. I mean, when we have these conversations about something like header bidding or display mm -hmm. advertising, it feels like this this con this world is rapidly shrinking. This is a world yeah. that is going away, and we've got people who are fighting for smaller and smaller pieces of the pie. Mm -hmm. It seems like advertising is moving to platforms i mean it's like moving to twitter and facebook and youtube and yeah who knows where else the publishers uh, they kind of need to reinvent themselves um, i'm sure it'll happen eventually when the sites start to look more like a medium and less like janky wordpress sites <laughs> no, yeah. no offense to wordpress great product i use it for soft software engineering daily but wordpress isn't is uh i you know and i i don't think is the future of of uh publishing where do you see ad tech going? There's three things I see. One, increase in measurement, auditability, right? Advertisers are the last one to know about something. That whole scenario I was describing with uh, people optimally kind of maximizing their session revenue, you know who's the last one to notice is the advertiser that actually, or the advertisers that actually bid against that, right? They're they're going to want more transparency. So there's going to be more auditability in the system and more cross-functional auditability, as in people are going to use standards and not deviate when it comes to measurement. And that's the best way, even though it's not the perfect, like it's not going to be the the silver bullet, it's, it's the best way to actually get the advertiser information. As for actual advertising, you know, digital advertising, there's been a lot of consolidation, right? You see year over year growth for Google and Facebook, it's very large, whereas the other exchanges and other ad tech companies are actually not growing as much as they want to, right? There's been a big consolidation. So 
you see the prices on Facebook and Google as a as a person, how much, you know, as an individual, as an organization, how much you have to spend on cost per click advertising sometimes just to kind of outcompete or be in the conversation. The brand availability is very small, right? You see uh, on online advertising, the internet's supposed to be so open, yet you see the same brands advertising all the time because they're the ones who can afford it, have all the knowledge or the agencies with all the knowledge or the connections. You just see a very, like, how how is the how is the everyman supposed to advertise, right? Like, you have to go to Facebook and maybe hopefully, you know, post something on Reddit or Hacker News or Facebook that goes viral. And you really have to knock on doors, whereas these brands just have this whole ecosystem. They can badger you with content. So you'll start to see that more where it's like the technology is there now. Advertising can render very, very quickly. That's the thing that we've figured out is uh, it's not um, some internet speeds are fast. You know, there's mobile, there's a lot of real estate still there, but technology has gotten faster. So there's more kind of throughput that you can throw out the system. So you'll see publishers, you know, start to reach out to, you know, these vendors that are actually optimized for certain performance levels and actually have transparency and do a lot of the heavy lifting for them when it comes to measurement, right? Like if advertisers want all this measurement being done, well, what's something that can just kind of do it uh, inherently? But from the standpoint of just uh, consult, we'll first probably see a consolidation and then kind of a, a rebound from that where it's a, where people are just going to get fed up. They're going to get fed up with the Internet that they see and say, OK, what's my opportunity in the Internet? You know, this was supposed to be an open ecosystem and I'm trying to launch something, you know, like I don't necessarily have a car that I'm trying to launch, but it's a good idea. How do I share that now? It, it's just gotten so saturated and compressed where if I'm not a million dollar, billion dollar brand, I don't even have a shot. Like what kind of internet is that? So you'll see a rebound from that and hopefully that that can be done right where it stays for the everyman. It's not for eventually Coca-Cola to take over and say, hey, like we're gonna outbid every one of you fools. Yeah, I I I think I share your vision. Interesting points. Well, Praneet, it's been great chatting and I've enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of times we've met. And I look forward to hanging out with you and Shalin in the future and talking more about ad fraud. Absolutely. And thanks for having me.